Welcome to episode two of the six-part Bill Parker series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. In episode one, we heard all about Bill's experiences growing up during the Great Depression and his skills as a cowboy in southeast Oklahoma. In this episode, we'll hear more about Bill's youth, meeting Colleen, the girl of his dreams, and ultimately getting involved in World War II. And we're going to talk more about when uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked, uh, how he heard about it, and um, how he started getting involved in the military. So I went back in the mountains to see about the cows, found them all pretty quick, found some big grapevines with big blue grapes on it, ate all them I could stand, <laughs> come out of the mountains on the other side than the way I went in, come down this road and come back to the one that I should be on. And this girl was standing at the mailbox getting her mail. I rode up and talked to her, me a horseback, never got off. And we talked for 45 minutes or an hour. I'd heard of a Pretty girls of Rosedale, and she was one of them. Anyway, why? Finally, she said, I've got to go to the house because they'd be calling me. And she went. I spent the rest of that summer, I couldn't get her off my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I went to see about the cows, and, and I went. More often, we go going just for <laughs> that reason. <laughs> you checked the cows a lot, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> anyway, why? I'd come back by the mailbox, but she never was there. And I was too bashful to go up to the house, ask them for a drink of water. Anyway, that fall then, little schoolhouses was having pie suppers for by thanks for Christmas. And I told my mother I was going to Rosedale to the school <coughs> to buy supper, and she had to iron me some clothes to go, wouldn't let me go like I was. And uh, anyway, she asked me about money, and I didn't have any. She said, get some off your daddy because you got to have money to go to pie supper. Well, that was like getting it out of the government. Dad didn't have <laughs> no money either. But anyway, we got any time I saddled a horse, why Dad had come down to see what direction I was going. I guess so. If I got lost, he'd know how to hunt me. But uh, anyway, why? He asked me if I had any money, and I said no. He fumbled around in his pocket and found a quarter. Mm -hmm. Give me that quarter, and I went on to the pie supper. Asked the girls then over there what her pie was because I knew her name. They showed me. Pies was bringing 10 and 15 cents apiece. Her pie come up for sale, I had to give that whole quarter for it. <laughs> Best quarter I ever spent in my life. <laughs> and when the pie supper was over, why, 
We had to eat pie together. It was chocolate, best chocolate pie ever made. <laughs> anyway, I ate pie with him. And then when we got done, my, all the country girls walked down the road by the set. I got on my horse and rode up beside of her, stepped off just like I was going to tie a calf, <laughs> got her by the hand, and I had her 73 years after. So you just met Colleen. Colleen would be the love of his, of his life. Um, it would be the, um, she was his girlfriend when he would ship off to the European Theater of Operations. And when he came back home, uh, a short four or five months after he got back, they would be husband and wife. And we just wanted to share that clip with you so you could, um, you know, better appreciate uh, what a court looked like back then. Well, I, and I just got to say, is this not a Hollywood movie in the making? I mean, He's on a horse. Can, I mean, this is, I still can't get over the, the dichotomy here of a guy having a foot in a different century. Yes. Because... He's a cowboy in southeastern Oklahoma courting his girlfriend at a pie supper, at yep. a pie auction or whatever, and he meets her on horseback as she's standing at her mailbox. It's just, it's Little House on the Prairie sort of stuff. It's so awesome. And it's also World War II and the 20th century and the coming of our nation, you know, and what it is in the 20th century and what it's become now as a superpower. It's just an amazing story, and it's quintessential American nostalgia. Yeah, it's like Norman Rockwell uh, if he were painting things out in Oklahoma instead of New York. But uh, at any rate, what it's going to show is why what happened next would be that much more uh, difficult for him and disruptive in his life. Tell me about where were you at when you heard about Pearl Harbor, and what did you think about that? Well, I was going to see her. That happened on a Sunday morning. I was horseback going down this country road, and a girl come out from a house and stopped me and said, they borrowed Park Harbor last night. Well, we didn't have radios, but they happened to have one. And uh, I said, well, where's Pearl Harbor? Well, she didn't know, but she said, we're in war. Well, it really didn't make much difference to me at that time, you know. But uh, I didn't know at all what what it was going to lead to. Yeah, so 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 they didn't know where Pearl Harbor was. No one did. Everybody we've spoken to, pretty much, when we ask this question, most of them don't know where didn't know where Pearl Harbor was. They'd never heard of Pearl Harbor. Yeah, you know. And the fact that we had a base there was new to them. Yeah, and it was a new base, by the way. Yeah, that base was established just a year before, maybe two years before Pearl Harbor was attacked. People weren't traveling to mm -hmm. recreate in Hawaii back then. The mm -hmm. money wasn't there for it. So unless you learned about it in school, read it in the paper, you weren't going to know where it was. Yeah, and and what was interesting to me is, uh, you know, this girl coming out and stopping him. You know, I don't know if he was just a friend of his or whatever, and you know. He, he had no idea what the implications were going to be on his life. And I like you know. his phrase was, it make no difference to me. <laughs> and uh, Which, you know, everyone's reaction to Pearl Harbor being attacked is different. Most of the time, it's, it's shock, it's anger, it's dismay. Most of the time, it's not this. 
it, we don't have a lot of interviews that I can think of where the the person that we asked that question to who lived here in that time said, eh, it didn't make no difference to me, but that's Bill's, that's in his nature. He was uh, a chill dude. He um, he mentioned a her as well. I don't know if this her was this her, but at this time he was dating a woman named Colleen, the love of his life. Uh, he would marry her after the war. We're going to talk a little bit more about Colleen later, but at this time, he was traveling 60, 60 miles a week on horseback every Wednesday, every Saturday, every Sunday to spend time with his his girlfriend, his soulmate. And um, somehow, uh, I think I think what he was saying in this clip was that he was traveling to visit her when someone pulled him in because his family didn't have a radio. Imagine being that broke. And, uh, and they heard on the radio that we were at war. Yeah. You know, so uh, this next clip, it talks about, you know, he may have thought that it didn't make no never mind to him, but the war would catch up to him and it would start making a never mind now. Now, did you enlist or were you drafted? <laughs> no, I did not enlist. You, you did not? Yeah. No, I wasn't like one of them fellows that said at 17, I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go at all. Mm-hmm. I had a good deal where I was going. I had a good horse. I had a good saddle. I had lots of country to rope in. I had the best-looking girlfriend in the country. I couldn't have wanted any more. <laughs> I don't blame you. I would have wanted to do the same thing. That sounds like a great life. It was a great life. Yeah. No, I, I had a I had teenage years. I had a good life. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, you said, I would have did the same thing. Well, guess what? Statistically, you would have. I looked this up. Uh, just guess, what percentage of the um, people who served in World War II were drafted? If you had to guess. Mm, 40%. I, I would have thought the same thing. Less than half. 60%. Really? Yeah. 60% were draftees, which means the vast majority of uh, people felt like, Bill, who wants to go to war? Who wants to die, right? But at the same time, you know, a lot of people step up when the country needs them. That 30% or 40% that actually did volunteer, um, I'm sure they were the people that were at the prime age, ready to go in college, just graduated from high school, maybe not working, maybe got really angry. You know, we saw the wide range of reactions when 9-11 uh, occurred and our Absolutely. towers were were uh, collapsed due to terrorist activity. We saw a wide range of things. Well, you know, this was uh, similar in that re- in that regard. Uh, I would argue that back then, what the Japanese were doing was more existential than what we uh, uh, experienced in nine eleven. But the reaction to it was very similar. And Bill's reaction was. I don't really want to go to war. I've got a girl that I love. I don't want to leave her. I'm going to marry her someday. I'm making decent money. I'm having fun bull riding. Things are going my way. Yeah. Why do I want to let this come in and and disrupt everything and maybe even end it for Yeah, him? right. So so I, I had to look that up because I'm like, I wonder if people got drafted. And it was a much higher number than I thought. And after giving it, you know, after contemplating on a bit, it's like, oh, you know, that kind of makes sense. I, I, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. And you said it was funny in that clip. You're like, well, I don't blame you. I would have the same thing. Statistically, you would have, yeah. and so would have I. Um, so now we're going to uh, go to the next clip, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about his transition uh, into military life. What was your training like? Well, it was 
mostly getting us in shape, but we learned to shoot the M1 rifles, the bazookas, Bangalore torpedoes, throw hand grenades, crawl under bellies on on the war, under war. We done mostly we done marching and getting in shape. Mm-hmm. But we done all of this other stuff. We learned how to handle a grenade. One time why the sergeant was showing us all about the grenades and how to pull the pin and he explained it to us that if uh, if we ever pulled a pin and happened to drop it, why fall on it, so it wouldn't hurt, wouldn't kill any of them other soldiers. And about that time, he pulled a pin and fumbling it around with it, he dropped it. <laughs> we was all sitting on a hill. We like to cripple each other getting over the top of that hill. <laughs> Nobody fell on his grenade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, he's like, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say other than I get it. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> totally would do that. Well, so apparently at this point in the training, the the, the the fellas hadn't been trained hard enough to have that instinct just kick in. Yeah, they did not have that <laughs> that band of brothers sort of ethos developed yet. It was more of every man for himself, and let's get the hell away from that drop right. hand grenade. Well, and, and the, I first thought that maybe that the, 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 the drill instructor guy or whatever was did it on purpose. You know, but it sounded like he said he fumbled around, like, like, oh, 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 you know, and then then dropped it. Everyone's scrambling the other to go the other direction. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, also, really, just a real quick timeline. Uh, we didn't ask Bill uh, exactly when he started his his boot camp, but this would have been before D Day, because right after he got done with his training, that you're going to hear more about in subsequent clips. Uh, he went right to England and right to D-Day shortly thereafter. So I'm guessing this is, you know, six, seven months uh, prior to D-Day. So, you know, you're looking end of 1943, early 1944, that he would have been undergoing this training. So at this point in the war, you know, a lot had happened, uh, you know, in, in the, in the uh, European theater. You know, we had in 1942 and 43, went into North Africa, pushed the Germans and Italians out of there. We were in Italy, moving up Italy um, into um, Northern Italy and, and, and hopefully Southern France, which wouldn't happen during the Italian campaign, even though that was one of the goals. But the real invasion that was going to uh, end the war more quickly in Europe was 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 D Day was getting a large amount of um, American, French, uh, British, Canadian troops onto the European mainland closer to Germany. In this case, in France. So, so just a quick timeline on this that I just wanted to share with everybody. Something else I want to add to that, you know, Bill goes into he gets assigned to the 116th Infantry Regiment of the 29th Infantry Division. That group is primarily National Guard troops from yeah. Virginia. Yeah. And I wonder, like, well, how does a kid from Oklahoma end up in a National Guard heritage troop uh, out of Virginia and everything? Well, he, I asked him that later after the interview at, at another time I was talking to Bill. And he said he laughed about it. And he said, I don't know. I just think I must have been the replacement or something. <laughs> I, yeah, I and I was like, well, wait a second. You know, your unit, his unit didn't experience any fighting before D-Day. And as a matter of fact, 
they were in Britain for two full years prior to Mm D-Day. And because of how long they were there, they became kind of the butt of local jokes. They referred to them as Britain's own. Yeah, or England's own. England's own. And so um, he came over there later. Um, Maybe someone got injured and got shipped back to the U.S., and that's how he rotated in as a replacement. Uh, Could have been maybe because of some of the training that mm-hmm. we'll talk about and some of the, the, the actions they did with, with, uh, with dry runs on, you know, invasion, uh, beaches and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, yeah, just a little bit of extra information on that. Sure. So, uh, the next clip is a little bit more about, uh, training as he was working his way towards becoming a member of the, uh, 29th infantry division. To go to, go to the army, I had to go to, we live 11 miles from Shady Point. I don't remember exactly how I got down there, but I caught a bus full of them, just like me, going to McAllister. I think they put us on a train there, and we went to Fort Sill. Okay. Fort Sill, then, why they sent me to Camp Walters, Texas for the infantry. When I got the infantry, why the first thing they done, might have not been the first thing, they checked us all in and give us clothes and stuff, you know. Next thing though, they took us to the rifle range, Hmm. see if we could shoot. Well, I'd been shooting all my life. Sure. Shooting left-handed. Oh, anyway, it. they handed me the M1 rifle with a clip, and he showed me how to work it all. Had me feel of it and get it into my shoulder. Then he told this fellow, said, put up a dummy out there. And they did. He said, shoot that dummy in the heart. And I said, I don't know where his heart is. They <laughs> said, well, it's the same place yours is. <laughs> so I took the place I thought was his heart, and I shot his clip for him. You could put every shell I shot in a cup. Really? With that M1 rifle, first time I ever picked it up. He looked at it, and he said, now that's good shooting. (laughs) So the M1 Garand rifle was the main battle rifle for the United States military in World War II. It was developed by a Canadian gunsmith named um, uh, John Garand. Actually, he called himself Garand, but we call it Garand because we're Americans. That's what we do. And the clip he was talking about, um, the Garand was... Uh, chambered for the the 30-06 cartridge. It was a 30 caliber cartridge developed in 1906, hence 30-06, 30-06. It's a very powerful cartridge. In fact, the design specification for this cartridge was the military wanted a 30 caliber cartridge that was as powerful as it could be for the average person to shoot. So it ended up being a pretty powerful cartridge. Wow. And, and to this day, it's one of the top like hunting cartridges in the world. And in North America, the 30-06 will take down any animal that walks. So he has a battle rifle that held eight rounds of 30-06 in these metal clips. 
and you would pop these clips into the top. The end block clip. The end block clip into the integral magazine, it's called. It's just the place within the gun that would hold all these rounds when you close the bolt. And it was a semi-automatic rifle that was developed in the 30s and used during World War II and the 40s. And that was really special. So every time you pulled the trigger, it would go bang. It wasn't a machine gun where when you hold the trigger back, it continued to go bang. It was semi-auto. So every time you pulled the trigger, it's bang, bang, bang. When you got through the eight rounds, that clip would fling out the top, let you know it was time to reload and you would do it. This was pretty revolutionary. This weapon that was the standard issue for the United States uh, infantry was um, in contrast to the bolt-action rifles that, say, the, the Germans, the British, and the Canadians, and the Japanese were using. In fact, going into World War II, the United States was the only military whose standard-issue rifle not a special purpose weapon like a Tommy gun or a pistol or, or a machine gun, but the standard issue rifle was a semi-automatic. And some people would say, well, wait a minute, Tony, about the Russians, they had semi-automatic rifles as well. It's called the SVT-40 for you gun wonks out there. But that was not standard issue. They made a lot of them, but at, by the end of the war, the standard issue was either these uh, semi-automatic, um, uh, not semi-automatic, but these um, uh, burp guns are called, or a Mosin-Nagant bolt action. So it was, it was an advantage for the U.S. military to have this, and they were highly accurate. Uh, Bill talked about hunting when he grew up. A lot of these farm boys hunted, and when he came to military, they could just be smoking Joe Frazier behind the rifle. But there was one problem that Bill had, and you're going to hear it, on this clip right now. And he told that fellow, said, put up another one. Hand me another clip. And he said, now shoot him in the heart again. I put it up to my left shoulder. And he said, no, no, put it on your right shoulder. <laughs> I said, no, I shoot left-handed. He said, you don't in the Army. Oh, oh, you geez. shoot right-handed in the Army. Why is that? I don't know, because <laughs> these say shoulder shells out in your face. Oh, shooting left gotcha. Anyway, that would right, suck. he stuck up another dummy, and I shot at it right-handed. And <laughs> you took area about the size of that drum over there to cover where I'd shot. And he kind of laughed. Told that fellow, said, put up another one. <laughs> Handed me another clip. Said, now shoot it again. And I stuck it up to my right shoulder and started. Sh he said, no, wait a minute now. Said, you're closing the wrong eye. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I opened that other eye then and shot it pretty good shell. Not as good as I shot left-handed, but I got the marksman. Badge for shooting. Really? Started off. Yeah, for, for shooting with a hand he's, he's not used to shooting with. And, you know, the joke is there's the Army way and then the right way. And apparently the Army way was to make sure everyone shot right-handed. Um, one of the things to keep in mind for those who, who don't, you know, haven't shot rifles or anything is if you're right-handed, you're also what they call right-eye dominated more off, uh, dominant more often than not. So if you were to you know, hold a 22 rifle up, you would want to, you know, look out your right eye to line the sights. Typically, when you're left-handed, you're left-hand dominant or left-eye dominant. Now, it's not always the case, but it generally is. So to have the Army 
take this man who was a lefty and could, you know, shoot the whiskers off a fly at 100 paces <laughs> and to have him just basically learn to shoot with the wrong hand. I mean, try, if you're a righty, try writing a sentence left-handed. Well, that's what they're basically telling him to do with a rifle. And he still got marksman, which yes. is one step away from expert. So that's what's amazing to me. What would this man have been if they just said, you know what, like in today's military, if you're left-handed, left-eye dominant, just rock that. Yeah. And so we've been talking about the M1 Grand a little bit. We're going to get you more geeky. Uh, Ryan's got a demonstration for us. I actually am holding in my hand right now an M1 Grand from World War II. Uh, the serial number on this is less than a million, so it was made in around September of 42 is when this one was actually made. But... Um, what we wanted to do is just kind of give you some sounds from this thing, okay? So it's actually, uh, there's a clip in it. There's no bullets in it, okay? We're not going to shoot anything inside the house. Yeah. But we've got a an empty clip inside this. So I'll pull the trigger so you can kind of hear what the trigger action sounds like. And then I'm going to pull the, uh, the, the armature back, and you'll hear the clip eject and hit the cement floor here, and it gives you that classic sound that you heard in Band of Brothers, for instance. So here we go. We're going to shoot the, 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 uh, the trigger here. Now pull us back. Beautiful. Oh, my Lord. So that, that sounds that like World it. War II. You would have heard that all across Europe, all across Asia. Um, so it's a, a magnificent gun. Feels so great in your hand. And and it will reach out and touch you whenever it fires. I mean, I could, I've been out in the gun range with this with, with headphones on, shooting long distance. And I can hear the bullets going into the trees behind the the iron cutouts. Now I'm not supposed to be missing the iron cutouts, <laughs> but it happens from time to time, and you can hear them just thock hitting hitting the trees back there in the background, and it's impressive. Yeah, so we just want to add an extra dimension to what uh, he would have experienced. And for those people who don't feel you know comfortable around guns, we totally understand that. Um, Ryan and I enjoy um, collecting these old military rifles because, quite frankly. You know, we want to we wanna know what it feels like uh, and, and smells like and everything uh, to hold, you know, some of the equipment that some of these men who fought in World War II in particular experienced. So you just heard the grand ping right there. <laughs> okay, and so we're moving on. At this point, he's being taught how to march. He's being uh, kept in shape. He's being um, taught how to use his weapon, and he's finishing his training, and now we're going to transition to him being um, moved to England to join the war effort. She stayed. She come home from Tulsa to be with me until I went back. We both got on a bus and went through McAllister. She come on to come on back to Tulsa, and I got on a troop train at McAllister. That was the loneliest, saddest day of my life mm -hmm. when she went off in that bus and I went the other way to, to New York City. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, he, he knew uh, that was going to be maybe it, maybe the last time he would ever see her or she would ever see him potentially. Um, he didn't know what what what, uh, what the future was going to hold. That would be a very tough why in the road there, you know. Yeah, and unless you're in a military and been deployed, which I have not, I don't I don't think we know what that's like, but we know it would suck. And the she that we're referring to, of course, is Colleen, his girlfriend at the time, his soulmate. 
And um, she, she saw him off in McAllister. So in the next clip, you're going to hear more about him um, traversing the Atlantic. We began training then for, we knew for France then, mm-hmm. and everything we'd done. We, look like, I don't know exactly how long we was there, but not very long. They sent us to England. We went on to Queen Elizabeth, mm-hmm. big, a big ship, not a boat ship, big <laughs> ship. Anyway, the, most of the time on it, I was on KP, but I was mostly sick. I wasn't no sailor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So were you seasick? Seasick. Really? Yeah. yeah I could, on the Queen Elizabeth? I could just think about it and get seasick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we finally got to England after 14, 15 days. I've forgotten that exactly. That's a long time. Somewhere yeah. over there, the boat began to zigzag, and they said, said there was something following us. I didn't know. But what it was, it didn't catch us, I guess. But we got on to... We went off, they, they took us off it in Ireland and then put us on another ship to England. Mm-hmm. Got in there after dark. And then they began training us for the invasion. Okay. We'd go get on landing crafts and come back to shore, you know. And, do a little imitation fighting or crawling on our bellies under the water and machine gun shooting over our heads and, and uh, getting ready for the invasion. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, you know, what's interesting is, you know, he doesn't mention it in in this interview, but I, I did a follow-up interview with, with Bill, um, and we started talking about uh, when he did these these mock invasion landings, and I asked him, uh, "What have you ever heard of slapped in sands?" And he's like, "Well, yeah." He goes, "That's where we practice. That's where we did our mock invasion beach landings." Everyone, I don't know if anyone out there has heard of the fact that there was this huge debacle that happened. At Slapton Sands in right around uh, late April of 1944, and uh, there were a, a large number. Uh, it was a, a very huge invasion force coming in that we were trying to, uh, you know, practice our landings and everything. So it is an exercise. It was an exercise yeah. coming in on the beaches in England. Yeah, Slapton Sands Beach of England, which was, which was very similar in size and beach consistency to what the Omaha Beach and, and all the Normandy beaches were going to be like. So um, I asked Bill, I was like, well, were you involved in, in, that, in that exercise that was such, that had such a large amount of a loss of human life? There was around 700 men that died um, on troop transports out at sea before they landed because German torpedo boats came across the channel. The the German torpedo boats came came across the channel and sunk. They got in amongst the convoy and sunk these guys, killed a bunch of them. Um, And then there were, uh, as the guys landed at the beaches, there was poor communications, poor visibility, 
And there was a whole bunch of friendly fire deaths yeah. that happened. Well, Bill said, he goes, well, I don't know because it was a mock invasion. We thought it was all real. It was all part of the exercise training, but it might not have been. But he said, I did see my first dead body on this exercise. Well, I did some research. His unit actually landed a week after the Slapton Sands debacle. Oh, so he was seeing potentially a, a dead body from that previous exercise? Yes, yes. So he was not in the the really bad loss of life that happened just one week before. And let, let's unpack that a bit. So here, so the 29th Infantry Division, as Ryan said earlier, had been in England since 1942. Um and they were called England's own because they had been there so long. All these other divisions were shipping out and fighting North Africa and Italy and Sicily and all that. And here's this this division just kind of there for two years. And 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 they're 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 training all the time. They want to go in there with a sharp tip so they can, you know, um let their training take over if something were to happen. And so you here you have this exercise. And the men knew, they didn't know exactly when D-Day was going to occur, but they could tell by the way you move things around and radio traffic and all that, that it was close. You do this exercise, which is supposed to reinforce your training, make you feel like you have confidence in what you learned. And it turns into this debacle where you got German U-boats sinking transports and hundreds of men dead, died. It was such a debacle that that they kept a, a lid on this. Yeah. That this wasn't something that people knew about until after the war. Decades after the war. Decades after the war. It was it was extremely embarrassing. I remember that story came out, I think like it seemed like the 1980s. And it was new. Yeah. Like, whoa, what? It's like, huh? And and a lot of those deaths were kind of either swept under the rug or accounted for with the invasion. Yeah. You know, because the invasion would have happened just, you know, not even six weeks later. Yeah. So so think about how this would have, you know, shaken the people associated with these units that had men die in this way in a training exercise. The command structure would have been shaken. Uh, do we have the right equipment? How the hell did we let these freaking U-boats get in the middle of a big training exercise? Um, so they, you know, there was, there's a, a psychology to warfare that's just like in sports, you know, it's not just about healthy body. It has to be healthy body and mind. And this couldn't have helped at all. And, Could you uh, imagine being the the planners of this exercise? No. Wouldn't you think that maybe the Germans were listening and had cracked your code, and that's why they sent those torpedo boats across to wreak havoc? I mean, a, a number of things. It may have just been serendipity. I don't been. know what happened with that. But nonetheless, over 700 men died. More men died in the sinking of those transports than did on Omaha Beach. Think about that. That's incredible. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that's that's what's tragic about it. There's that. And then that's not counting the men that landed on the beach on the exercise. And the, uh, there was a couple hundred men that died in that Jeez. from friendly fire. Yeah. You know, so uh, anyway, Bill was not in that. But just one week later, they were landed with the 16th Infantry Division at Slapton Sands, and that was going to be the group that they were going to land next to at Omaha Beach. And we'll hear later that they actually landed intermingled with the 16th Infantry Division. But the point being, they landed a week later, and it went off without a hitch. Yeah. It was a brilliant landing. Um, you have to hand it to the planners that they um, uh, fixed a lot of problems uh, and I don't know it, what all exactly went into the failure of the intelligence and the communication in the first one, 
Uh, and whether it was actually corrected for the second one, or maybe it was just better visibility that day, I, I don't know. But but it was uh, it was interesting that that he was just one week removed from that disaster to a new one to a new one coming six weeks later, and and here we are. So he's finishing up his training here, and he's getting ready to move into uh, what's the next clip? Is he going to be actually the, the talk about clip? the, the tra- travel across the bay? Yep. So we're we're done with training. We're we're done with England. Now it's time to. Uh, for him to take part of the invasion of Europe on D-Day. And his next clip talks about the Channel Crossing. I think you said in your 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 biography that uh, they put you aboard a ship the day before and you were on the ship like 24 hours, right, before you guys took off across the Channel. What was it like in that 24 hours before you guys actually – you know, left port to go across seas. I understand the weather was not very good. Weather was was real bad. They put the invasion off. It's supposed to come off on the 6th, but they put it off on the 5th, I mean. Okay. And they put it off to the 6th. I read afterwards that Eisenhower seen that there was going to be a, a break in the weather. And uh, he knew that uh, all of the planning they had done, that uh, Germans would find out what we'd done in that late the time. So when the weather got pretty good there for the 5th, why, or for the 6th, he, he said, let's go with it. Mm-hmm. And that's, we were already on these ships, you know. And... I think I just stayed one night on them. Next morning, they got us up real early, fed us beans for breakfast. Now, I've heard that some of them say they had a good breakfast, and I read that somewhere, that, and it made, got them, make them seasick. <laughs> and beans didn't make me sick. Mm-hmm. The only time I didn't get sick out of that ocean was when we landed. At this point in the war, what's going on? Um, Germany, um, the, the maximum extent of the German occupation of north of Europe went from as far east as the northern Caucasus region in the Soviet Union, as far north as Norway, as far south as Greece and all of France. So from north, south, east, and west, they controlled the bulk of Europe, really. Except, you know, Square mileage-wise, uh, maybe Russia still had more land. But uh, nonetheless, they had a very large footprint and a very large influence on the region. And so by May of 44, right before the invasion – What's the state at that time? So we've seen the high watermark mm-hmm. of the German occupation in Europe. Uh, but by May of 44, things had begun to change. Uh, the Russians had thrown the Germans back at Stalingrad and had turned the momentum against the Germans and were starting to push to the west over towards the, you know, through the Eastern Europe, Ukraine, um, Croatia, and all those regions there. Um, to the south, we had just pushed the Germans out of North Africa with Operation Torch come through Sicily, and we're moving our way up through the boot of Italy. We were halfway up the boot of Italy. The Italians had surrendered by this point, so the Germans were on their own at this time. The point here to this, though, is that they had a two-front war in May of 1944. We needed to open a third front 
and that would happen in Northwest Europe. Mostly because, you know, if you think about geographically, we had the Russians coming in from the West. We had us coming up through Italy. If we could come in in Northwest Europe or Northwest France, then we would have their forces spread out in a large geographic area to the east, to the south, and to the northwest. So that would keep their them at their wit's end of supplying all of this, you know. So coming in in Northwest France was the shortest distance across the English Channel and potentially the shortest route to Berlin. And the most favorable terrain for our type of fighting, for the for the forces that we had deployed at that time. And favorable civilians, yes. you know, to help, <laughs> yeah. to help the Allies. Too, yeah, we were liberating know? a country. Yes. So the buildup of the Allied invasion began in England, of course. Bill would arrive as a replacement in the 116th Infantry Regiment in January of 1944. The 29th Division was stationed in southwestern England along the coast. And their landing mates, the 16th Infantry Regiment of the 1st Division, were stationed in south-central England. They had the shortest distance to go across the channel to land. All of the other invasion divisions were likewise scattered across southern England. 156,000 soldiers and nearly 7,000 ships were involved in this invasion. It was the largest invasion at this point in the war. And think about that. What you just said was we had um, over 100,000 men that we were going to deploy using over 100,000 naval uh, 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 assets, people, sailors to move them over there. And they all had different points of departure. And they all were able to meet at at their at the points where they're going to launch the amphibious assault. I mean, it it's I you know it's it's a pretty people wondered why it took so long for us to have an invasion of France. There was earlier in the war prior to our participation in, in Torch uh, to go invade North Africa and push the Germans and Italians out of there. The United States wanted to attack. France right away, like 1942, like right when they got into the war. Yeah. And the British understood that that was an impossibility, that, that, that they weren't ready, we weren't ready. And as you go through what was, in, what was entailed to get this invasion, to get this force uh, onto France, it, it, I, I find it puzzling that any general could have thought in 1942 that the United States could have even pretended to have undertaken this. This is an incredibly complex endeavor. Well, and you think about it, by June of 44, much of their forces were tied up with Russia, which they would have been in 42 also, mm-hmm. but and they would have been tied up down in North Africa in 42. Mm-hmm. The British had just come through Dunkirk and Dieppe. Yes. They knew... <laughs> what they were up against, and they knew, I would think, that we weren't ready, just like you said. They, so they, that influence yeah. definitely came into play. So on June 5th, the invasion forces boarded their troop transports to reconnoiter in the English Channel overnight for the landing on June 6th. Bill's company was aboard the troop ship, the USS Thomas Jefferson, and with them being located in far southwest England along the coast, they had one of the longest travel routes to to circle up, to link up with the 16th Infantry Division guys in the middle of the channel overnight to be able to land. So the, he, he, Bill was on a troop ship longer than some of these other guys were. In the, and this is in, not— On the ocean. Yeah, this is not good duty. They just had a storm the previous day. The, uh, the channel and uh, the surrounding seas were very tumultuous. So the 116th were probably a little more thoroughly seasick than maybe some of the other— Units were, um, and that kind of would probably work against them. Now, 
We heard Bill talk about how sick he got on the Queen Elizabeth. A very large ship. A huge cruise ocean liner. Yes. He was sick as a dog coming across the U.S. Now he's on a smaller ship, not nearly as comfortable. And coming across the English Channel after a storm, mind you, yeah. where the waves are really huge, 20 feet high, big waves, mm-hmm. um, trying to survive this and still be able to land and not be throwing your guts up you know, you know, know, as you hit the beach. A lot of these guys still were, but... There were five landing beaches mm-hmm. at 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 uh, Normandy. Gold, Juno, and Sword were for the Royal Canadian and British forces. And those to, were to the east, right? That was the furthest east. Yeah. Yes, um, right along the coast there. And then, as you moved to the west, you got to Omaha Beach, and then further west from there uh, was Utah Beach. You, Omaha Beach was the most heavily defended beach and had some of the more formidable beach obstacles and terrain out of all the five beaches. On Omaha Beach, uh, there are also individual landing sectors. All of them had individual landing sectors. But for Omaha Beach, which is the subject of this this series. So anyway, um, on Omaha Beach, uh, so Bill's landing sector for his company was Easy Green. Adjacent to them was Dog Red, which was the sector where the the 16th Infantry Regiment that they trained with at Slapped and Sands would land on their left flank, just as they had trained for. One of the biggest obstacles that was long feared by all the planners was the supposed Atlantic Wall. All the fortifications that Nazi Germany had built from the south of, well, sorry, the farthest west part of France, where it joins up with Spain, mm-hmm. all the way up to Norway. And they couldn't build a, a actual wall like the you know the the great wall of china for instance but they had interlocking fortifications all along these areas and um in each of these fortifications um there were machine gun nests casemates with 75 millimeter artillery guns and all encased within these highly impregnable gunite cement fortifications in bill's sector there was what was called Widerstandsnest 62 or WN62 defending, defending the Colville draw. There were about five draws or little valleys that came from the high plateau down to the beach, which would be how we would get all of our men and material like tanks and trucks up these 100-foot high embankments to the high plateau. Yeah, and during peacetime, these draws would have been where civilians would have accessed the beach. And it was you, a vacation area. It was a vacation area. So if you were standing on the beach, you, uh, the beach was five miles long, roughly one run, running west to east. And um, there was five of these draws that would have had in peacetime stairs on them. And, and you would have walked up these draws, these gullies. And at the end of each of these draws was a small town, a little beach resort, a resort town. Like Vierville-sur-Mer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that was what we were going to assault, was to roll up into these draws and then take these towns. So WN62 was the most heavily fortified, supplied, and staffed fortification along all of Omaha Beach. So WN62, is that like the name of like a bunker complex or something? WN is Widerstandsnest. <laughs> okay. For all, that's my best German. I got it's nothing better good. than that. It sounded German. Um, and there was uh, WN60 at the far uh, eastern end of the beach at Kborg, and then you had 61 and 62 and uh. so on. And 62 was where they felt was the most likely place we would bring our supplies up. It was the biggest draw. It was going to be our main artery, they thought, to bring up things out the beach. And they were right. right. They were right. (laughs) Um, So anyway, um, as as Bill's group 
would come in to land, they were going to be landing very near WN-62. So what, you know, Bill is in his assault craft, okay, his landing craft. And so what exactly is within this, you know, what is in the landing craft? What sort of men and material are there? Well, for a typical assault boat team, and I'm reading from Appendix 4 of Joseph Bukowski's Omaha Beach book. Great book, lots of great firsthand accounts. But you're going to have one boat team leader, either a first or a second lieutenant, who is carrying a carbine and a walkie-talkie. You have an assistant boat team leader, just in case the other guy, uh, yeah. something happens to him. And he's carrying an M1 Garand. One five-man rifle team, each with an M1 and two Bangalore torpedoes. One four-man wire-cutting team, that's Bill, each with an M1 Garand and wire cutters and two Bangalore torpedoes. You'll hear Bill talk about the Bangalore torpedoes shortly here. Two two-man BAR teams, Browning Automatic Rifle teams, each with two of the, the rifles and two M1 Garands and extra ammunition. They carried lots of 30-out-6 ammo. <laughs> One four-man mortar team with a 60-millimeter mortar and a Colt 45 on their hip. <laughs> three, and then with uh, three M1 carbines and extra mortar ammo. Two man bazooka two two-man bazooka teams with the bazookas and M1 Garands. Uh, one two-man flamethrower team, okay. which you don't really you hear, don't hear a much whole about lot. That. That's always connotated with the South Pacific, yeah. the Pacific Theater. But there were some guys here, just not very many of them. Right. And a lot of them didn't survive the beach landing. Um, and he carried a 1911 Colt pistol, his 80-pound flamethrower, nitrogen tank, an M1 Grand, and extra fuel with him. By far the worst job of the entire assault team <laughs> to have a big bomb on your back <laughs> that everyone's afraid of and is going to shoot at you first because yes. they don't want to be torched. One five-man demolition team, each with an M1. <clears throat> they each carried Primacord, TNT, satchel pull charges, detonators, and were that were all divided among the team, and then... One medic. Okay, so, oh my gosh. So, <laughs> Unarmed. Well, and, they, and they were ordered a certain <clears throat> way within the landing craft. Who was at the very front? Typically the CO. <laughs> or if the CO wasn't on your landing craft, it was the wire cutters. So when Bill says he was the first man to set foot on bloody Omaha at 6.30 a.m., he very likely was out of his landing craft. There were a lot of guys landing right there at 6.30. Yeah. But he, in his sector, his landing craft, he jumped off with the wire cutting guys and then you'll hear the rest of his story after that. This completes episode two of the six-part Bill Parker series of the Warrior Next Door podcast. Please join us next time for episode three and being the first man in his landing craft to set foot on Omaha Beach in the first wave of D-Day. 